You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal, nuclear energy, natural gas, hydro, solar power, wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For September 2nd, 2020, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. In recent years, we've seen numerous models of how a decarbonized power grid could work in the future. We've also seen models of how a decarbonized global energy system could work, including all the forms of energy that are not provided by the power grid. And we've discussed some of them previously on this show. For example, in episode 95, when we spoke with Dmitry Bogdanov about the extensive modeling work that Christian Breyer's team at La Penranta University of Technology has done to model the global energy systems. Or episode 111, when we spoke with Christopher Clack about his team's modeling of the energy systems of Colorado and Minnesota, including their costs and operating characteristics under a highly renewable energy system. But how can policymakers actually plot a path from where we are now to a deeply decarbonized energy system in the future? What are the specific policy pathways that we need to follow? How can we make sure that we're making the right moves now to put ourselves on those paths? What kind of governmental leadership do we need in the U.S. and around the world to achieve our decarbonization targets? And what can we learn from major federal infrastructure stimulus programs like Roosevelt's New Deal during the Great Depression of the 1930s or Obama's American Recovery and Reinvestment Act during the Great Recession that can help guide us today as we contemplate major new infrastructure programs to help pull us out of the Trump slump? We first explored some of the pathways to deep decarbonization with McKay Miller in episode 63, but now we're going to go several levels deeper and explore an extensive body of modeling work aimed at understanding them. It began as part of the years-long Deep Decarbonization Pathways Project, which involves a large group of researchers from 15 countries, and has now culminated in several major papers which are in the process of being published under the auspices of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network, or SDSN. We're going to delve into the details of that modeling work in episode 131 a month from now, but today we're going to begin by speaking with the director of the SDSN, Dr. Jeffrey Sachs, a professor at Columbia University and the director of its Center for Sustainable Development. He's a highly respected leader on sustainability issues who has been twice named among Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential World Leaders and has received 28 honorary degrees. The New York Times called Sachs probably the most important economist in the world, and Time Magazine called Sachs the world's best-known economist. He is the author of numerous books and other publications and has been a trusted advisor to numerous leaders in the U.S., as well as three United Nations Secretaries General, where he currently serves as a Sustainable Development Goals Advocate under Secretary General Antonio Guterres. He's a man in high demand, and it is truly a pleasure and a privilege to have him on the show. 
Then in the news segment, we'll have a look at the difficulty California has had in meeting power demand during the record heat of August. We'll note a wave of write-downs by the world's oil and gas majors. And we'll review a series of recent reports about the falling fortunes of coal globally in another exciting episode of Coal Death Watch. But first, our conversation with Dr. Jeffrey Sachs, recorded August 21st, 2020. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Jeff, to the Energy Transition Show. Great to be with you. Thank you. You're the director of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network, which has been releasing a series of papers on low-carbon transition strategies for the United States. The papers describe pathways that the U.S. could follow to achieve carbon neutrality, in other words, to net zero emissions by 2050. And the papers have been developed as a part of this Deep Decarbonization Pathways project, which involves a large group of researchers from 15 countries, as I understand it. Now, we're going to dive into the details of that modeling and their findings in a future episode. But just to get us started here, could you explain a little bit about the context of this work? Like, why are these researchers engaged in it? Why is it being published under the auspices of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network? And what does this project hope to achieve? The Sustainable Development Solutions Network, or SDSN as we call it, is an initiative of the Secretary General of the United Nations. It's eight years running now. I'm lucky to be president of SDSN. It's a network of universities around the world, also research centers, think tanks, and I would say science-based NGOs. The purpose of SDSN is to find solutions for sustainable development, including the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, and the Paris Climate Agreement. So the context of the deep decarbonization pathways work, which is now eight years running and six years of a series of publications, is to mobilize energy experts, both engineers and energy sector modelers, to identify what is my favorite word in this whole area, pathways, the pathways to climate safety. And when we started in 2014, we took the pathway to climate safety to be essentially a rise of Earth's average temperature of no more than two degrees Celsius and a phase out of net carbon emissions specifically somewhere around 2070 or 2080. As you know, the evidence has shown that the situation is more dire than was suspected even 10 years ago. The increasing evidence is that the human-induced climate change is accelerating and that we are passing very, very dangerous thresholds. Indeed, we've already passed one crucial threshold. We're warmer now than at any decade or century, as far as we know, of the entire Holocene, that is the 10,000 years of civilization after the last ice age. We've already passed that threshold. We are hurtling past 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is proxy, but a rather significant one in terms of the risk of massive disintegration of the Antarctic ice sheet and possibly parts of the Greenland ice sheet as well, which could lead to catastrophic rises of the sea level. So all of this is to say that when governments got together in December 
2015 to negotiate the Paris Climate Agreement, what had been more or less the standard two degrees Celsius and decarbonize somewhere in the second half of the 21st century became the aim to keep warming to below 1.5 degrees Celsius and to reach net zero emissions by 2050. That's a very tough standard, but I would say all of the evidence since that December 2015 agreement pushes us even more strongly in that direction. We are in terrible trouble with terribly dangerous feedbacks in the climate system that could accelerate the climate change dramatically, changes of albedo, uh, release of greenhouse gases from the permafrost, evidence of faster accumulation of methane than was believed, lower stability of the West Antarctic ice sheet than had been suspected, major changes in ocean dynamics. There's no good news on the climate front, and temperature increases are already in the range of 1.2 degrees Celsius warmer than the pre-industrial level, of course, depending specifics on dating and methodology. But we are warm, getting warmer faster, and so the need for the energy transformation, which is the fundamental part of eliminating net greenhouse gas emissions by mid-century has become ever more urgent. Into this entered the Trump administration going full blast in the wrong direction, a kind of vulgar last stand, an industry that has shown reckless irresponsibility now for quite a long time, big coal and big oil and worse in the United States than just about any other part of the world in terms of recognizing or acknowledging scientific truths, because they're all recognized inside these companies, but they're not acknowledged. And so we've reached, it's not a cliche to say it, we've reached the end of the road of climate safety unless we embark on this decisive transformation now, the costs are going to multiply in a terrifying rate in future years. We just can't even imagine what a second Trump administration would do. That's the context in which our work is now underway in many places in the world, finding pathways. That means technological transformations and investment pathways that are supported by public policies to decarbonize energy systems in all parts of the world by mid-century. The U.S. project is therefore necessarily part of a global effort, and the Sustainable Development Solutions Network is working with Latin American groups, with the European Union and its European Green Deal, with China on greening the Belt and Road Initiative, and on China's own energy transformation, with ASEAN, to help promote an ASEAN Green Deal, and so on. This has to be a global effort. The United States is a big part of that for many obvious and perhaps some not so obvious reasons. And the U.S. project is aiming to put the U.S. peace in place for a global transformation. Okay, so what are the key pathways to decarbonization for the United States? For any part of the world, the 
basics are the same. There are six major sector transformations that are needed. At the core of the transformation to a zero carbon system is power generation. And that's for two reasons. One, the power sector by itself is accounting for perhaps 40% of the direct emissions of CO2, that is the burning of coal and natural gas primarily to generate electricity, but also because electrification is a vital part of getting to zero in the other sectors. The second main sector is transport. And transport, of course, is a constellation of modes. Light-duty vehicles are cars, and light-duty trucks is one big piece. And electrification of those vehicles using green electricity, that is electricity produced by renewable energy or other green methods, is central for that part of transport. But there are big puzzles also for heavy trucking, uh, especially long-distance freight, for shipping, especially ocean shipping, and for aviation, especially long-haul aviation. The third sector is buildings. That includes both residential and commercial structures. These directly emit CO2 from the boilers and the furnaces using heating oil or natural gas both for heating, ventilation, air conditioning, and also for cooking inside these buildings. The key for buildings is, again, electrification, mainly a shift to heat pumps for heating and also a shift to more cooking with electricity. And so much more energy-efficient shells for buildings and electrification of buildings is key for that third sector. The fourth major sector that needs transformation is an assemblage of heavy industries, especially petrochemicals, cement, and metals industries, iron and steel, aluminum, and others. And there are big challenges in moving the industrial sector, which accounts for perhaps 20% of CO2 emissions in a typical industrialized economy to zero. Those include partly electrification, partly simply not using certain materials as much like single-use plastics, and so shifting materials or packaging or logistics to reduce the weight of those sectors, or other technologies such as shifting process heating to large-scale industrial fuel cells a hydrogen cycle combustion as an alternative where the hydrogen is produced using renewable energy and hydrolysis or some other green chemistry and so on. But the point is that industry is a complicated set of sectors, each of which requires its own technological pathway. The fifth sector that is also a major part of the CO2 story and also has many moving parts, one could say, is the land use sector. So land, of course, contributes to CO2 emissions through deforestation or through degradation of grasslands and other biomes that are 
perhaps destroyed by human activity or destroyed in a secondary way by climate change itself. But land can also be a positive part of the solution by storing more soil carbon through better farm practices, low-till or no-till agriculture, alternative crop choices and rotation methodologies. Land use also matters through something as basic as food loss and waste because we are losing, as people know, roughly a third of the total food production, partly to losses on farm, in transport, in marketing, and in waste after food is partially consumed. And so the food life cycle can be vastly improved for efficiency and therefore putting less weight on land and therefore lower CO2 emissions. A healthier diet can actually make a big difference because a shift from a heavy beef diet to one that is more based on plant proteins has been shown through multiple studies and examples in real world cases to be environmentally far more sustainable. And land finally comes into the story through next generation biofuels. We don't want biofuels that compete directly with the food supply or with vital ecosystem services where land should just be left alone. But we do want biofuels and need biofuels. For example, it is believed for long-haul aviation in a next-generation biofuel that uses crops or natural fibers that don't compete directly with the food supply or with the vital refuges or biomes that should be protected and not harvested. So all of this is to say land use is very complicated, and it brings in the ecologists and the agronomists, the biodiversity specialists, as well as the climatologists, the soil scientists, and the nutritionists with a big role to play here that has not been worked out in any sufficient detail of pathways or quantification. Finally is the materials sector. That is downstream uses, especially of petrochemicals, cement, and other industrial sectors that are major emitters of greenhouse gases to see what can be done through alternative materials, through far more recycling, far more efficiency in materials use, and all of the sustainable materials management and circular economy strategies can significantly reduce not only pollution, toxics, wastes, and so forth, turning them back into inputs or eliminating them as waste outputs, but also can reduce directly and through the life cycle CO2 emissions. All of this is to say that when you have six sectors involved, each one of which is technologically distinctive, each one of which has its own policy, environment, market and non-market dimensions, public investments and private investments, multiple stakeholder groups in society involved, we're talking about a big change in our politics and in our economy, not one that has to 
hurt us financially or economically because the cost of these changes is not very large, but the time that will be needed is measured in decades, not years. And that's why it's so painful that we have lost so much time in the past and why we can't lose any more time. Not that we're going to get this transformation done by 2025 or 2030. We won't. This is going to require it to mid-century. But because we basically run out of time to make the transformation in a feasible, financially and economically manageable scale and pace and still have a shot at keeping the global temperature increase below 1.5 degrees C. You know, I'm glad that you brought up that land use aspect because it's something that we haven't really talked about that much on this show because it is the energy transition show. We try to stay focused on the energy part of it. But you're right, the land use bit is really an important part of the total picture on emissions. And I should note that you wrote a terrific article outlining these pathways, which was published in the American Prospect in December 2019, titled Getting to a Carbon-Free Economy. And our subscribers can log into our website and find the link to that article in the show notes. So one of the things that I think is particularly interesting about this modeling work is these top-line summaries that it really is not going to be that expensive to accomplish the energy transition and to meet these targets that we're aiming at. I mean, these are complex pathways that you just laid out, and they do encompass many different parts of the economy. But in terms of, you know, just the practicality of it and the cost of it, it's really quite doable, isn't it? What is absolutely remarkable and ironic is how low the cost is. We are not being held back by the cost. We're being held back by two main issues. One, it's complicated, and it's not simply market forces, even market forces with a corrected price for CO2. It is public investment, private investment, R&D needed to fine-tune technologies, public acceptance and approval. Many things are needed. That's one point. And the other point is vested interests. The main barrier to transformation politically, without question, is the old guard industries, big oil and big coal. And I see that in my work all over the world. Places that don't have fossil fuel reserves are far advanced in the energy transformation from the places that do have those fossil fuels. It's not a matter of different costs, actually, because there's a world market for fossil fuels. There's a world market for renewable energy, photovoltaics, wind turbines, and so forth. So it's not a matter of costs. It's a matter of politics. The places with the fossil fuels are generally places where those industries are very powerful lobbies. They ruled the roost, I would say, for a century, roughly from 1910 to 2010. And so it's a rude awakening for the giants of the past, like ExxonMobil or Chevron or others to be told, you know, (laughs) you're shrinking. And we see that happening right now rather dramatically. And they don't like it. And uh, the Chamber of Commerce hasn't liked it. And the American Petroleum Institute hasn't liked it. But that's a part of this issue. It's not the cost per se. When you actually look at the costs of this transformation, It is remarkably low cost. In fact, 
some studies and some very serious studies say it will be actually net cheaper when you factor in all of the public and private investments that will be undertaken, not only in a safer environment, but in the direct outlays to be with the green economy. It's also the fact that the technologies are better. An electric vehicle is a better vehicle than an internal combustion engine vehicle. It's a lot smarter car. We will move to autonomous driving. We'll move to a lot more safety. We'll move to a lot more efficiency with the electric vehicles because they combine not only the transmission possibilities, but they make it easier to incorporate the digital into a vehicle that is already an electric vehicle. And so we're going to see a higher quality of life and the transformation by the estimates that we've been making for the last seven years, in fact, not quite as ambitious seven years ago, more ambitious now, is that the net costs of the transformation are really unlikely to be more than 1% per year of national income and could, in many scenarios, be far, far less than 1% of national income. And that's for a much better outcome in terms of quality of life. And of course, then you add in the multiples of that in terms of safety for the planet. There's absolutely no doubt that this passes the cost-benefit test many, many times over. Think of the renewables, for example. We already see all over the United States that wind and solar are displacing natural gas, not to mention coal, purely on a cost basis, not even on a regulatory climate change basis, but just on a cost basis. We've reached grid parity or better, especially, of course, in places with a lot of sunshine or places with good wind. We see the costs of offshore wind plummeting because the technologies for offshore wind to stabilize wind turbines offshore where there's an enormous amount of energy to be harvested are getting better and better. And this is, by the way, one area where our existing big oil companies can become big wind companies in a very effective way because they know how to build ocean-based vessels and rigs and platforms, and it's very much the technology to build offshore wind, as the Norwegians are already demonstrating. Used to be Statoil, now it's Equinor. They're capturing more and more of the offshore wind market. So when you look at electric vehicles, when you look at clean all-electricity buildings, when you look at power generation, we're really in good shape. We're basically at grid parity. That means the levelized costs of energy services are no higher with the clean variant than they are with the dirty variant. Great news. Then that will carry us perhaps 70 or 80% of the way. Then big questions open up and multiple competing visions and pathways. We don't have a ready-made solution for the moment for heavy, long-haul trucking uh, freight. 
some people think, Elon Musk has said to me, he thinks batteries are going to improve sufficiently that it's just going to be electric trucking. And of course, he's unveiled some models recently on that. Others in Northern Europe are looking at overhead catenary lines in which you have an electrified cab pulling the containers, and those could be extended across the U.S. interstate highway system. Others, of course, are looking at hydrogen fuel cell technologies as an alternative. Still others are looking at other kinds of green chemistry, other green fuel carriers, including synthetic liquids or next-generation biofuels. When you go across the harder sectors, and I would include there the heavy overland freight, the ocean shipping, which could be hydrogen combustion or a large fuel cell, the aviation, steel industry, cement, and petrochemicals, that is roughly 20% of the challenge. The marginal costs for those sectors are higher. That's why any sane strategy would make a very significant investment in R&D, both publicly financed, and we're recommending a public financing of the kind that we had, by the way, under the Obama administration and was stopped by Trump because he doesn't want to know. They just want to continue the past. But we need to know which of these alternative technology pathways is most feasible and economical. So we need an R&D pathway to solve some of these challenges. But I would say in that regard, we're good for 75, 80% of the transformation. Pretty clear shot with what we know now and what really is within reach and what is happening on normal learning curves. We have 20 or 25% perhaps where it's tricky, contested, different pathways. None of it magic. None of it remotely as uncertain as saying in May 1961, hey, why don't we go to the moon and back before the end of this decade? If this is our generation's moonshot, we're a little bit slackers to say, why don't we decarbonize net by 2050 compared to an eight-year timeline for getting to the moon, which is what was carried out by NASA in the 1960s. So I'm very confident that it's not the finance or the economics that is holding us back in any serious way. And I should mention that the kind of propaganda that we don't know that it's so high cost that it will kill the economy that I read almost daily in the Wall Street Journal is not only disgraceful, but is a profound disservice to its readers who are real business people who need to make real investments based on real knowledge. And I love the journal other than the editorial page and the op-ed page, which are basically oil industry propaganda. But the news stories tell it right. I'm objecting to, for example, a recent story which said that COVID-19 has shown what a climate change future is like. No cars on the road. Because those people who say we have to get rid of our cars are going to condemn us to no travel. I thought 
hasn't any fact checker at the Wall Street Journal heard of electric vehicles? Is it so shocking? Did they perhaps not notice that the most valued manufacturing automobile company in the entire world today is Tesla, who, thank you very much, will produce a zero emission vehicle? Where does this come from, this freedom to propagate nonsense? Well, we know where it comes from. Maybe it comes from the First Amendment misused, but for serious people who have to plan serious businesses for the future, the important thing to remember is not only do we need to make this transformation, not only are the pathways relatively clearly known, and even when they're not known, down to a few specific choices, but the cost structure is such that as a business person or as an investor, you can have high confidence that we're going to go that way. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show are free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Record-breaking heat across most of the U.S., but particularly across the American West, pushed power grids to the limit in August as people turned to the air-conditioned indoors to escape the heat and, in much of Colorado and California, a blanket of smoke from numerous wildfires. For several days starting August 14th, as many as 2 million Californians experienced rolling blackouts for the first time since 2001, as CAISO, the California wholesale power market operator, tried to keep surging demand in balance with supply. Kaiso issued a flex alert asking residents to set their thermostats to 78 degrees Fahrenheit or 25.5 degrees Celsius or higher and to avoid using any non-essential appliances, but it still wasn't enough. 
Imports of electricity from other states through the western states' energy imbalance market were largely unavailable, both because the neighboring states were sweltering too, and because the market rules did not allow CAISO to increase imports. We do not yet have a definitive account of the many factors that conspired to produce the rolling blackouts as of this writing, but California ISO said two natural gas power plants shut down on August 14th, and a wind farm and another gas plant had a shutdown on the 15th. Cloud cover reducing solar output may have played a role as well. But the primary driver, without a doubt, was surging demand from air conditioners and fans in the record heat, which, as we all know, is a consequence of climate change. And on the whole, it appears there may have been insufficient backup generation or other flexible resources for a situation in which multiple generators go offline. One of the best accounts I've found so far on the challenges facing the California grid was an opinion piece written by Energy Transition Show alums Alex Gilbert and Morgan Bazillion, which you can find in the show notes of this episode if you log into our website. Item 2. According to the climate finance think tank Carbon Tracker, which you'll recall from our interviews with Mark Lewis in Episode 6 and Kingsmill Bond in Episode 108, the world's seven largest oil companies have slashed their forecasts for future oil market prices over the past nine months. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at MikeSugarMusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XC Network.